Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 16 of the Mad Scientist podcast. I hope the first feelings of warmer weather are coming your way, as I know they sort of have here in the mountains of New Hampshire. We had one day that was like 60 degrees recently, which was pretty sweet. But it then went back to being early zero at night, so yeah... Back to winter. Before this episode begins, we have some housekeeping once again to take care of. So let's jump right into that before getting into this episode on Morgellons disease. So number one, a tremendous thank you to everyone who has listened to this show. We hit 10,000 downloads the other day, something that is pretty amazing for something that I write and record in my underwear on the weekends as a hobby. My 10,000th downloads wouldn't have been possible without the help of some amazing friends I've made already in my podcasting journey, including TJ at Pints and Puzzles, Scott and Forrest and Tess at Astonishing Legends, and of course, Marie Mayhew, my roundtable co-host. Everyone else in the arc has been a huge help too, including Tess, who've already mentioned, Miranda, Rob, and too many other people to name. My podcasting time already has had me investigate things I never thought I would be able to speak to experts on the sorts of mysteries I used to dream about researching, and adding my small voice to the huge river of podcasts. And it wouldn't have been possible without those of you who listen to this show every week, or well, every time I get my crap together and publish a new episode. Another big new thing going on this week is that we have another Patreon supporter, and this time in our highest level available. Travis Steinbach, you are the very first Stib Knight level supporter of the show, and you are awesome. Thanks for the love, and I hope to keep you coming back for more. The sticker and thank you doodle is being prepared as I write this, so please send me your address as soon as you get it. If you would like to join our Patreon team, you can do so at patreon.com slash the mad scientist podcast, all one word. There are different levels of support with cool crystal names and everything, so check it out if you can. This show right now is 100% listener-supported, so if you like the show and would maybe like to hear more of it, please consider donating. Already, donations have allowed us to upgrade the account to allow for both roundtables and full episodes, as well as create stickers. We also used some of this money recently to build a website, which is now available and will contain transcribed show notes, links to stuff, funny pictures, and other content. Probably the most important piece of that content will be links directly to the sources that I use on these episodes, including any kind of like free article access that we find for scientific journals. So for instance, in this episode tonight, there's going to be two or three articles available on the website that you can go to to actually see the real science behind some of the things that we're talking about. The website also has a store where you can buy the stickers. Hopefully soon, this website will include more merchandise and YouTube videos as soon as I get that kind of thing together. Finally, on a personal note, this is my last semester as a graduate student. I have finally gotten a firm, no more hand-waving date for my dissertation defense. And so soon, I will hopefully be a doctor of mad science. Or, more honestly, a doctor of chemical engineering. That means that podcasting in the next few months will be slightly hectic. (laughs) 
Hence, the more often roundtables, which really don't take nearly as much time in planning or editing as these full episodes. Now, I'm still planning on doing two full episodes a month, as well as two roundtables. And in fact, that number may even increase with special interviews and things with some of my friends in the podcasting world. But things may get a little crazy as I get fitted into my wizard robes. So I apologize in advance if I am late on an episode. I would love to turn this into a full-time job. But frankly, at the moment, this is a labor of love. And like all labors of love, sometimes they must be kicked back to the curb by the cold, hard, steel-toed boot of adulthood. And finally, I have to give a huge shout-out to Dr. Donara Andarova and her fiancé, John Villanueva. They've been listening since the very beginning. And in fact, Donara is one of the people that really spurred me on to starting this podcast in the first place. So, this show would not have been possible without them. Okay, housekeeping done. Commencing podcast proper. This will likely be one of the last episodes in our series of medical weirdness. With this episode, and maybe another one being the final two. This one is a long time coming for me. And in fact, this topic was one of the first ones that made me want to start a podcast in the first place. This episode will look at Morgellons disease, and a little bit at electromagnetic hypersensitivity. Two conditions that the medical literature suggests are completely made up, and yet which has sufferers numbering in the hundreds. These are what I would term made-up diseases, although I'm only doing that because I can't think of something that rhymes with fake news. As an aside, I think it'd be really funny to do an SNL sketch or something, where Alec Baldwin's Donald Trump only says things that rhyme with fake news. Like he's giving an interview and they ask him about his wife Melania's modeling pictures, and he dismisses them as fake nudes. Or he's getting flustered, and so he shouts at the reporter that she has fake boobs. Or he says that those recent bouts of anti-Semitism aren't really a big deal because he's read that they're being perpetuated on behalf of fake Jews. Just saying, SNL, you can have that one for free. So these conditions are really quite strange, because there are people who claim to have physical, verifiable symptoms, which medical science has not been able to quantify or find evidence for at all. What's going on then? Is there a history of fake diseases? And if so, how can we explain them? Is it a symptom of modern life? Or is it a symptom of the human condition generally? Or is there really something medically going on with these people? We'll try to find out on this week's episode of the Mad Scientist Podcast. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast! Today's episode, more gallons! Okay, the first thing we need to talk about this episode are memes. In many ways, these two diseases we'll discuss this episode, and many of the stuff we talk about on this podcast generally, can be dissected and analyzed through the lens of memes and how they spread. I'm sure some of you are scratching your heads here, though, since what a meme is may not be clear. To many online now, memes are those weird pictures with the white text that make you chuckle. But a meme is actually a pretty interesting concept in anthropology and sociology. Memes were developed and thought about initially as the consciousness equivalent to a gene, and as a gene can be carried or transmitted by some kind of viral host, and were first discussed by Richard Dawkins in his book, The Selfish Gene. Memes are things in this sense which carry social thought, ideas, symbols, practices, and prejudices, 
and which transmit from person to person through the media, and most famously today via the internet. They become a part of the social consciousness almost on their own, without someone meaning to spread them, but simply getting out there, and eventually becoming parts of the social fabric. Things like saying hasta la vista, baby, that stupid dancing hamster from the 90s, the Golden Girls theme song, getting down on one knee to propose, all of these are memes which spread around us. And they spread and change and seem to compete with one another for relevance and advantage, in a pseudo-evolutionary way, just as genes compete in the replication of those species that continue them. It's sort of like that line from Mean Girls, don't try to make fetch happen, it's not going to happen. Fetch won't happen unless it can compete with other silly words to convey that something is fashionable, like hip or cool or sick or fat with a PH. And memes do have with them social advantage, right? I mean, if you're wearing a cape and a trilby hat everywhere, people will think you're a weirdo and stay away from you. Whereas if you sort of get yourself in line with the current social structure and don't rebel or non-conform, you'll have a much easier time succeeding. I mean, the philosophical team of Adorno and Horkheimer would argue that rebelling itself is a socially accepted means of making that which was previously dangerous to the standard power structure in society no longer dangerous but accepted. So things in this field can get messy really quick. Obviously, this sort of explanation gets us dangerously close to just-so stories. Those fake things people use to explain human behavior in terms of evolutionary theory. Saying something like, Guys playing guitar because it gets them laid, because it's better for their evolution, is ridiculous. But saying that someone might pick up a guitar because it is socially advantageous may not be so silly. And although getting from socially accepted to genetically accepted is a wide leap, I think the concept of memes generally can be really useful when looking at societies and ideas and how they spread. Alright, so now we have some idea about what memes are. So what is Morgellons disease? I think one of the best descriptions of it, and its relationship to the world of memes, is from a letter to the editor titled Morgellons Disease's Internet Meme, published in the journal Psychosomatics in 2009, from a team at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, Canada. I'm going to read the entire letter to the editor here, because I think it makes the point I'm interested in, and gives a pretty good intro to Morgellons. Quote, To the editor, in 1690, Sir Thomas Brown, an English physician, made mention of a pediatric medical condition that he called the Morgellons. Quote, Hairs which have most amused me have not been in the face or head, but on the back, and not in men but children, as I long ago observed in the endemial distemper of little children in Languedoc called the Morgellons, wherein they critically reek out with harsh hairs on their backs, which takes off the unquiet symptoms of the disease and delivers them from coughs and convulsions, end quote. The Morgellons faded into obscurity and was rarely mentioned until 2002, when the mother of a child with a skin condition resurrected the term and began the Morgellon Research Foundation. According to the Morgellons Research Foundation, Morgellons disease is a newly described illness first noted in 2002. It is characterized by a number of symptoms, such as fatigue, skin lesions, diffuse musculoskeletal pain, cognitive dysfunction, and emotional lability. Notably, patients with the illness describe filaments of various colors spontaneously growing from their skin, as well as the sensation that insects are crawling under the skin. 
There has been much debate over the nature of Morgellons. Infectious, environmental, and psychiatric etiologies have been posited. The term meme was coined in 1976. Meme was chosen to be phonetically similar to the word gene in order to highlight the similarities between the two terms. It is an amalgam of the words memory and gene. Genes can be considered as units of genetic material that compete with each other for survival. Similarly, Dawkins suggested ideas are engaged in an analogous struggle with each other to attain dominance in the marketplace of ideas. The recent success of the Morgellons disease meme is, in part, explained by the fact that the Morgellons label resonates with symptomatic individuals. In one person's words, I felt so relieved. I found all these people talking about the same thing I was. Accordingly, Morgellons disease has been considered a report-enhancing term in clinical medicine. The dermatology literature indicates that Morgellons disease is likely the equivalent of delusional parasitosis, a psychiatric illness in which patients erroneously believe that their skin is infested with parasites. This competing conventional meme has been unpopular among individuals identifying themselves as having Morgellons disease. For Morgellons disease, most information available to patients exists on the internet, thus the World Wide Web is a second important contributor to the proliferation of the Morgellons moniker. With widespread reports dating back only about three years, Morgellons has seen explosive growth for a concept dormant for more than 300 years. A large CDC-supported descriptive study is underway, a first formal clinical epidemiological investigation of the Morgellons phenomenon, involving skin biopsies and fiber analysis. Results will characterize Morgellons as either a novel illness or an internet meme synonymous with one or more previously described disorders. And that letter is signed by Andrew Lustick, M.D., Sharon McKay, Ph.D., and John Strauss, M.D., and M. Science. From the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. That's the end of that, like, super long quote, by the way. <laughs> so, Morgellons is the string disease. You've probably seen posts about it online or funny comics about how silly it is. And in many ways, it is somewhat silly. I like to always tie it back to a really funny sort of carnival trick, which is the magnetic boy or magnetic man. These carnival workers were, and still are in some parts of the world, people who could supposedly have metallic objects stick to their bodies by some sort of weak magnetic attraction. The show Stanley Superhumans did an episode on a man who claimed to be magnetic in fact, and it's one of my favorite TV pieces ever, but I can't seem to find it online. So they're investigating this guy and talking about all these crazy things like maybe his body has suction cup thing like pieces on his skin so he's like Spider-Man or he really is magnetic in some way or whatever. And so then they go to investigate him. And it turns out just like all these magnetic people, he's just kind of like really sweaty. So he's just kind of sweaty, like so sweaty, in fact, that the objects can stick to his skin but it's just from the natural oils and whatever that he's making in his pores. Like if any of us went a day or two without showering, we could stick stuff to our bodies. <laughs> so it's not a superpower, but a potentially handy trick to see if your kids really did take that bath. They claim they did. <laughs> James Randi did a whole thing where he proved magnetic people were in fact just greasy 
when he put talcum powder on them, causing them to lose their magnetic powers completely. Anyways, as the letter states, Morgellons has really been on the radar of the public since like the early 2000s. Sufferers claim to have rashes or weird growths like fibers coming from their skin, crawling or biting sensations all over their bodies, extreme fatigue, memory problems, and difficulty concentrating. It's pretty crazy, but that original description from Sir Thomas Brown was from the Languedoc area of France, where children would often die in horrible agony after suffering from some sort of skin condition that seemed to leave them itching and with horrible rashes throughout their whole skin. But despite what that earlier letter stated, the condition never really went out of vogue, but simply wasn't really interesting to the prevailing medical fields. One other early description, as well as the potential cure or treatment, is given in the Observat Medicae Rere by Schenkius from 1610. It states the following, quote, There is a type of intercutaneous worm which is wont very frequently to infest infants under six months, and not infrequently also children of two years or of about that age. They are born, in preference to all other places, in the muscles of the arms, legs, and back, and arise from an excrementory humor which is contained within the pores of the body and is common at that age. This, because of the repression of transpiration and dispersal, undergoes putrefactive changes and becomes alive and, in proportion to the number of receptacles of the pores, is converted into worms, which have a shape not at all unlike those that are born in putrefying cheese, but very much smaller. They never creep entirely out from the pores, but protrude their little heads, which are distinguished as so many black points. How should they not then be most troublesome? For by exciting a sensation of extreme warmth and, at the same time, of itching, they bring in their train insomnia and restlessness. Where they are packed together in large quantities and are increasing, there they plunder away the living flesh, in the same way as do pediculi, the nourishing humors, taking for themselves that which should have been for tender bodies. Because of this, little children pass rapidly into wasting and extreme emaciation. As soon as the women become aware of this, they bring them to the sweating chambers and Turkish baths. They first soothingly massage the muscles and affected parts with the hands, and then also anoint them all over with honey. By this device, the worms are enticed out as far as possible and so killed. The further prescription of the surgeons that their protruding heads should then be mown down with a razor is not, however, followed by our people so much as it deserves. Our German people refer to these as Mitesser and Dizerende Worm from the fact that they seize for themselves and consume the food of the infants whom they infect. The Nuremburgians call them Diederzermaden, or as you might put it, the worms that induce wasting. These are followed by other descriptions of similar diseases. For instance, strange comedones or blackheads seen in children, and especially in the children of the impoverished areas. So there's some evidence of a continued belief, at least in this sort of condition, but not so widespread as to suggest anything like one expects with a real disease. I mean, even very modern views of psychological illnesses that are extremely hard to diagnose have a historical case study, like a history of cases with specific symptoms showing up again and again. Whereas Morgellons is sort of just a history of odd rashes and unexplained dermatological issues, something that really, when you think about it, isn't all that hard to understand. 
I mean, think about how often your own skin maybe has a weird reaction to some cream you put on it or something in the air or, you know, you go for a swim in a lake and all of a sudden you have a rash. And imagine that you had that happening back when there was no hygiene, right? That the chances of that just seems to increase, I mean, exponentially in my mind. Notice too that Morgellons, interestingly, that, that ex- explanation of Morgellons from uh, Schenkius from 1610 has this idea of spontaneous regeneration in it, right? Or spontaneous generation, which is this idea that flies and insects could actually be born from the putrefaction of wheat or, you know, so when, when old meat went bad, there was this idea that old meat would rot. And in that rotting process, flies would be born, right? That the flies actually came from the meat as opposed to the flies just sitting on the meat surface. And that's in this explanation, right? Morgellons or this explanation, this like historical explanation of worms coming from the skin was part of that idea that the humors, these oils in the body would rot and then would come from the skin as literal alive worms, right? I think it's also kind of interesting, this explanation of what sounds to me like um, a Dr. Pimple Popper video on YouTube, right? They talk about the skin being pushed down on and then these worms coming up out of the skin. And all I think of is, you know, using like a pore strip on your on your nose and seeing these what appear to be worms coming out of it. I hope no one is eating lunch when they're listening to this episode. (laughs) So modern interest in Morgellons centers around two basic camps. The first has this idea that Morgellons is most likely something psychological, such as a psychosomatic disorder akin to compulsive skin picking or hair pulling. This is the side of firm medical science, frankly, and has been backed up by some peer reviewed research although results continue to come in to make a more firm ground for these claims. On the other side, you have people that believe they have Morgellons and the Morgellons Research Institute, or the more serious-sounding Charles E. Holman Morgellons Disease Foundation. So, okay, what's really going on here with Morgellons? You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately 7 minutes. Well, first off, who does Morgellons affect? Although historically it seems that it has affected children in poor areas resulting in worms coming from the skin, today it affects older people, primarily women, and results in rashes, chronic fatigue, and fibers coming from their skin. Some claim that Morgellons is caused by spirochetes, a class of bacteria that sort of look like fibers, that they believe have infested them, either through gardening or like a tick bite or something, and that what's coming out of their skin are these spirochetes. Some may believe that they have chronic Lyme disease or chronic fatigue syndrome, two disorders that have huge online communities, but which there's really no evidence to support. Chronic Lyme disease is famous in my circles, at least, 
because Yolanda Foster on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills claims that she has it. This is supposedly also caused by a spirochete infection, but there's no evidence for chronic Lyme disease, nor for the efficacy of the often expensive and prolonged treatments that some doctors will try to sell you to cure these diseases. Other claims of Morgellons being caused by chemtrails, a whole other can of worms, forgive the hilarious pun, or by environmental pollution or something, are also completely unfounded to date. But people do really seem to be suffering. There are a lot of communities online, and people who claim that their lives have been so negatively affected by Morgellons that they can't work, or just like live normal lives anymore. So what does the science say? There really hasn't been a huge amount of good research done on Morgellons, but there are a few really good papers from truly reputable scientific sources. Probably the gold standard comes from an article written by Pearson et al., titled Clinical, Epidemiologic, Histopathologic, and Molecular Features of an Unexplained Dermopathy, published in the journal PLOS One in 2012, and PLOS is spelled P-L-O-S. Their analysis was done on Morgellons cases in northeastern California on peoples over the age of 13, reported during the years 2006 to 2008, and who were enrolled in the Kaiser Permanente Healthcare System in Northern California. To find their study patients, they searched for people who had reported Morgellons-like symptoms to their doctors. So they searched through the entire, like, 3 million enrollees of the health system to get their 115 case patients, who were then given online surveys first, and then some who showed continual problems with their skin and were over the age of 18 were brought in for clinical tests. From this survey, they found that the prevalence of Morgellons was around 3.65 cases per 100,000 people, with no clustering of cases, which may suggest an environmental or infectious source. So in other words, because they didn't find cases that were clustered around like, you know, in one neighborhood or clustered amongst one group of workers or something, it didn't really seem to show that they were spreading it to each other or catching it from the environment. 77% of those suffering from Morgellons were female and 77% were Caucasian, and they had a median age of around 52 years old. From the clinical testing of cognitive and psychological function, they found that the majority of those tested showed signs of cognitive impairment in some way, with the most dominant being inattention, with 18% showing lowered attention compared to average, and 16% with memory problems of some sort. 63% of case patients showed elevated levels of somatic concerns, with somatic concerns being the scientifically polite way of saying that they had irrational fears or anxieties about their health. Of those showing these elevated irrational anxieties about their health, 39% had evidence of coexisting depression, 37% had evidence of another coexisting psychiatric condition, 50% tested to levels of severe impairment of cognitive function, and 24% of those showing elevated levels of somatic complaints showed significant past or present drug or alcohol abuse. From their lab results, the only evidence of a common skin condition was that they all showed some premature skin aging from sunlight, which, I mean, makes sense for people living in California who are like 50 years old on average. A small number showed evidence of inflammation. That was clinically significant, while most showed no evidence or were borderline, 
or had previously diagnosed problems like thyroid conditions. Only one patient showed signs of a spirochete bacteria, although subsequent testing showed that this was a false positive. Although 8% did show evidence of roundworm, and another 8% evidence of a threadworm. Problematically, the lab results found that at least one drug was detected in hair samples of 50%, so 20 out of a total of 40, case patients who reported Morgellons symptoms, including three who had taken amphetamines, one who had taken barbiturates, eight who had taken benzodiazepines, seven who had taken cannabinoids, two who had taken cocaine, eight who had taken opiates, and one who had taken propoxyphene. I don't know if maybe my street cred is starting to drip away now that I've got a real job, but I actually had to Google propoxyphene, and evidently it's an opioid pain reliever. When they looked at their skin, doing biopsies on collected samples, with a total of 61 collected samples, they found that 51% of the lesions on people's skin showed signs of solar elastosis or sun aging. 40% showed evidence of excoriation or chronic irritation, which they suggested was in line with anxious skin scratching or picking, or the presence of itchy nodes on the skin. And 16% showed features consistent with bug bites or drug allergies. In the biopsied skin lesions, 43% showed evidence of something there, but in most cases this was found to be cellulose, or, in other words, cotton. They also found evidence in two cases that people had a wound heal around cotton or silica material, likely from continued picking at the skin or continued excoriation. No weird bacteria was found, and from normal sites, everything looked completely normal. And a lot of people are probably, if you're in the camp that believes in Margellan, saying, well, they found cellulose, that's not necessarily cotton. I mean, it's not necessarily cotton, but it's the most likely explanation. Cellulose is a huge, basically like a polymer made up of glucose chains. And cellulose is not made in the body at all. So, like, there's no possible chemical way for the body to make cellulose. There's just no possible way. Um, so, it has to be coming from an outside source. They also looked at the fibers themselves people brought in. So 83% of these were protein-based, either being skin things or, again, cellulose, likely from cotton. Some even have showed evidence of dyes, and Foyer Transform Infrared Spectroscopy, or FTIR, proved without a shadow of a doubt that the fibers were in fact cellulose. And FTIR is basically a fancy method, well, not really fancy, but it's a fancy-sounding title. FTIR basically is a method where you shoot a laser beam at, well, you shoot an infrared beam at some material, and then depending on how much of that infrared light the material takes in or leaves out, you can get an approximate idea of what chemical bonds are present. And that's because chemical bonds are quantized. We could do like an entire episode on how FTIR actually works, and it probably would only be interesting to people interested in like very detailed chemistry kind of things, but if that's of interest to you know, listeners, please let me know. So anyways, FDIR proved this thing was cellulose. These things were mostly cellulose. The only samples that were non-protein based were nylon, cellulose nitrate containing bismuth, which means it was probably nail polish from skin picking and polyethylene, which is a plastic in which they thought must have been a contaminant. 
But in any case, it doesn't grow from the body at all. The entire study is available on our website, but let's go through it in review anyways. Clinically, they found that a majority of patients with the worst Morgellon symptoms had some evidence of a tendency towards rational anxiety about their health, and half had a history of or currently tested positive for drugs. Even if we ignore the weed, because like, whatever, it's California, a large proportion of those with a mysterious skin disease took drugs that historically cause you to pick your skin and create odd rashes and bleeding. Besides these psychological evidences, the skin biopsies and fiber analysis showed absolutely no evidence at all of anything to suggest a natural cause for this disease. Everything points toward Morgellons being caused by people picking their skin compulsively, or some other psychosomatic cause that makes them think that they have a skin condition. And I don't want to make it seem like I am belittling those with Morgellons, because they clearly have a problem that is affecting their life negatively. But I think it is unfair and damaging to not call something that quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, a duck. If you are suffering from compulsive skin picking or anxiety issues, please go see a psychologist or tell your primary care physician. There is no shame at all in having a problem handling anxiety, suffering from depression, or having some other mental health challenge. I myself have spent my life dealing with a mental health challenge, and it is something that you should get in check for the betterment of your own life. Now, there is a fly in all of this ointment, of course. There are papers out there suggesting a link between Morgellons and spirochetes, or that these fibers aren't really non-biological fibers, but some kind of skin condition. But as far as I can tell, all of these papers are coming from the same few researchers who work for the Morgellons Research Institutes. And these institutes, of course, don't publish under their full name, which has Morgellons in it. Instead, they choose to publish under the title of Lyme Disease Institute, or the Charles E. Holman Foundation. Most of these studies have small numbers of patients, and all surprisingly show positive results indicative of Morgellons, according to the authors. And we're not talking like a, you know, a statistically significant amount. We're talking like a 100% success rate in every one of their patients. That seems odd. Most of their papers are histological, meaning that they're primarily images of these fibers, which yes, look weird, but again, we all know fibers are present in these patients somehow. And none of their results have been verified by outside sources to date. And that's the real key here. Maybe Morgellons is real, despite all the evidence. But right now, there are two camps. One from an institute which only exists if Morgellons does, and which of course takes donations to cure this horrible disease. And the other, which doesn't make any money if Morgellons does or doesn't exist, and which has a history of scientific rigor and good data. I think you can tell which side of this I stand on. So Morgellons is a really interesting case as a disease meme. And I think that in many ways we can explain its spread online by this idea that the options that like Morgellons being a thing and having this community that's fighting against some kind of injustice or something is very attractive to people, I think. Whereas being a compulsive person or having a problem with anxiety or picking at your own skin or something, those aren't kind of cut and dry issues. And on top of that, there is a still a very real 
negativity surrounding getting help for things like anxiety or depression or something. And so I wonder if maybe better mental health care and better communication between the mental health community and the public won't actually lessen the spread of things like Morgellons. But it's not just psychological diseases that seem to spread as memes, right? A really recent version of this is gluten intolerance. Suddenly, everything has gluten-free options, even Girl Scout cookies. And another one of these like medical memes that I definitely remember is the fear that cancer could be caused by cell phones being held up to your brain. And this relates to the second thing I wanted to talk about this episode, electromagnetic hypersensitivity. So this is a condition or like a cluster of conditions supposedly caused by electromagnetic radiation, which sufferers claim cause them to feel extreme pain or fatigue or headaches or stress or aches or rashes or all kinds of things, frankly. And notice, too, that the things that these diseases seem to cause are very diffuse kind of not specific things. No one claims that Morgellons leads to an increased, you know, output of a certain protein in the urine or something, or say that, okay, if you have electromagnetic hypersensitivity, you can see it on a brain scan or something, right? They say that, well, you know, I'm, I'm achy. I have a headache. I feel more stressed. I'm fatigued all the time. Things that could be caused by something like say depression. Anyways, besides the fact that we're always in the presence of electromagnetic waves, and that's true even if you wear an aluminum blanket like Saul's brother on Better Call Saul, there is no reason at all to suspect that there's some kind of biological component to this disease. And you're probably at home saying like, well, okay, if someone has this, then can they really tell the difference between when an electromagnetic wave is present and when one is not? And the answer to that question is a resounding no. Tests where electromagnetic fields are shot at a person and they're asked if they feel it or not show that those suffering from electromagnetic hypersensitivity basically show the same rate of correctness as if it was up to pure chance. And it's hard to get like really good science on this one, but there's really no evidence that they can feel the waves at all. And it wouldn't make sense anyways. And in fact, recent evidence shows that the best way to treat this disorder is the same way you treat any phobia through a method known as cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, where your fight or flight response is induced by putting you in a scary or uncomfortable situation and you're kept there until your anxiety level drops. This suggests probably strongest of all that a mental or somatic explanation for electromagnetic hypersensitivity does exist. And I think, frankly, the same sort of explanation is probably true for Morgellons. There just isn't any physical evidence at all out there to support this idea of spirochetes or something, or even just like your skin growing to make these sort of fiber kind of things. And look, if someone brings a fiber to a lab and it's shown to be caused by a spirochete or something, I'll come on here and say I've been wrong. But at this point, there just isn't any good, non-biased, not being run by an institute with Morgellons in its name, science, to support it. That's it for this week's episode of the Mad Scientist Podcast. This week's music comes from TTB, 
a band that has one hell of a chemical engineer in it. They are amazing. And their latest album is called Slimy Quagmire. Their band name is kind of weird. It's spelt parentheses, uppercase T, dash, uppercase T, end parentheses, lowercase B, which is pronounced TTB. Or at least that's what I've been told by one of their band members. I had a really hard time picking a song for them because like every song on this album is comically good. But this one is called Knucklehead. You can find them on Facebook, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, and around Boston. And get links to their pages on the podcast website under the notes for this episode. Thank you again for listening. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.